Ariel, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. Welcome to Let's Get Football for this week. Your host, Gabe Lezra. Um, I'm joined uh, today by Evan Matier. Evan, uh, how's it going? I had a fantastic weekend. Um, I've had a couple good weeks in the football world, and I'm absolutely terrified of Champions League football coming back. Yeah. It's scary, and it me makes too. me scared. Yeah, it's back um, back this week. Uh, so with that, we're going to try to get Ernesto back on the show to talk more about the FIFA stuff and all that. But... Um, <clears throat> This show is coming to you a little late because I've been sick, but the good news is that we do have an interview with extremely good friend of the show, Kevin McCauley, who's back on for the second time in three weeks uh, to break down the USSF election and in particular uh, the National Women's Soccer League and uh, women's soccer generally and some of the news that has been breaking there. It was a really great episode. We recorded it actually before the election, um, but all the stuff in the interview, Evan, I think... Uh, kind of bears that like was born out in the election. So we'll do a full election recap soon, but I think just, just kind of previewing that. Yeah. And I mean, in particular, Kevin dives into soccer United marketing and how that played into the election. And I mean, that issue is not going away just because the election's over. That's still an issue. That's still something that people who want to keep up with the Federation are going to want to know about. Kevin really breaks it down really well. And so definitely worth everyone's time, even though the election's already over and we know who won. Right. So with that, um, Carlos Cordero has been elected president of USSF. Um, definitely, <laughs> Definitely not the favorite going into the gates. But I think, uh, I mean, so f- first of all, you'll hear this when we talk to Kevin, but he, he accurately predicts the breaking the the way that this election went down in particular because the reason Cordero won is that the athletes council broke towards him um, for whatever reason. And that was really the, the, the thing that put him over the top because a lot of, you know, kind of the election watchers had figured that either Kathy Carter would win on the first ballot. And if she didn't win on the first ballot, then it became a much tougher race for her. Uh, not only did she not win on the first ballot, she actually didn't come in even first on the first ballot. So at that point it was very clear that Carlos Cordero had, uh, and engineered some sort of you know ballot or some well he just played his game played the game really well and so yeah the the athlete council breaking in block to him really put him over the top yeah I mean I have to think that SUM really hurt Kathy Carter in the end and I have to think that you know all these stories about how Gelati and and, and Garber and these people were kind of lobbying for her. Like, that's the fucking kiss of death, I think, in this election. Like, yeah. people were just not interested. There's a reason Galati was leaving, right? Right. And, and, and so, you know, I think that, that had to do with it. And also, Cordero's been running for this job, like, forever. So I, I think that he was already in people's ears. So, yeah. I mean, good for him. He's already said some pretty good things. Um, you know, I think we'll definitely do a, a kind of a prospective on his presidency. But yeah. I was kind of encouraged by some of his his statements in the last couple of days and yeah, we'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm glad yeah. this fucking election is over. Oh my god, me too. I'm extremely glad to avoid talking to anyone about this on Twitter anymore. I, I, 
I'm really I, the only person I'm sad to see go, and who I doubt will actually go is Paul Lapointe. You know, he he will I hope stick around, but everyone else can fuck off for a little while, like because and especially I think the people who are really obsessed with like Eric Winalda's candidacy, like despite the fact that I I like the burn it all down Hellfire Elmo style candidacy. Um, people need to calm the fuck down. Like this is, it's really not the most important thing going on in the world right now. So back off and, and fucking get out of my fucking mentions with that shit. I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, uh, hope solo. You can also fuck off. Like I, I... Go, go away. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Her, her comments after the election were e- extremely self-serving and dumb and uh, yeah, she she is very unpleasant. So she should go back to you know spending full time defending herself in court against criminal convictions. Exactly. Um, so that was that. We'll do a whole um, chat about Cordero uh, in an uh, upcoming episode. That's cool, I'm, and I'm excited to talk about it, but just not today. All right. So um, in other news, uh, I think importantly, Evan, this was the weekend of the North London Derby, and uh, Arsenal they they look kind of normal regular normal arsenal kind of mediocre to bad and spurs grabbed a strong win with uh with a really command performance from harry kane in the second half yeah i mean harry kane had the huge header i mean so this was one nil um the spurs won and that uh, is not really a great reflection of what that second half was like i mean spurs could have put three or four in it was just some wayward finishing um stopped them from from really pummeling arsenal um arsenal's they are pretty okay in the emirates and they are god fucking awful away from the emirates and that's been their story all season um and they are going to finish no better than fifth i don't think anyone thinks they have a realistic chance now of uh of finishing in the top four and that's really cool because i really like to say your ropa league side arsenal (laughs) that's a lot of fun it'll be even funnier when they get eliminated from the europa league this season (laughs) that's that's that also is very exciting because the europa league is actually really stacked right now with uh dortmund and atleti i think yeah among and and among others right i think there are a couple other sides there milan i think like it's it's probably the best europa league ever yeah, it's like uh, it's like could be a Champions League field, you know, knockouts for Europa League. So right, if you that's even, really fun. If you just made it four years ago, almost every side bar Milan was essentially a Champions League knockout round contender, which is amazing. Um, yeah, so that's exciting. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was also some, a little bit of drama. Well, I mean, there is, there's always drama in the North London Derby. You know, people are. People are bitches, but special shout out to my man, Eric Lamella. Eric Lamella is a fan favorite at Tottenham because he he gets it. Hashtag gets it. Uh, he came on the field and so he came on the field as like a second half substitute and immediately started trying to kill people. Um, this is the man who in previous North London derbies, after being immediately after be give, being given a yellow card, went in for a two legged challenge on Peter Cech. And it was amazing. Uh, so he <laughs> so, so he, cool. he immediately starts sliding into everything and probably the best part is there's this amazing clip on uh on, that i saw on twitter where he's kind of in a scrum of arsenal players and he looks right at jack wilshire noted piece of shit and says fuck you pussy and wilshire <laughs> loses his shit and comes at lamella and lamella just has 
the goofiest, biggest, knowing grin on his face <laughs> while he's backing away. And it's just the goddamn best thing. And I, w- I want them to build Eric Lamella statue outside of the new, new Spurs stadium because he is the best person ever. That's so cool. I love the idea. I mean, like, also targeting Jack Wilshire is super cool because Jack Wilshire is a piece of shit and, like, deserves it, like, all the shit that he gets. And so, you know, the more people can come in and just give him shit to his face like that, the better, I think. Also because Arsenal fans and like like people were talking about Wilshire as being their best player in this game, which is just hilarious and also probably true and also probably explains why they got their asses kicked. I mean, it's just like at this point, I mean, imagine being a, a member of that fan. Can you imagine like that's like like I'm a Real Madrid fan like and this has not been a kind season for my team, but Woo. I mean, let's we kind of talked about it when they were doing all their transfer business, but like Imagine just having spent all that money on 30-year-old Mkhitaryan and 30-year-old Aubameyang, or they're like 29. You just spent a bunch of money on them. You weren't that good before. You're not that good now. What the fuck have you accomplished? That's so cool. I, I mean, look, let's be clear. Aubameyang is one of my fa- automatically has become one of my favorite players in England just because he rules. and He's awesome, and he, I really hate that he wears red now. Yeah, it sucks that he goes he plays for Arsenal, just like it sucked that Zlatan played for uh, Manchester United. Um, but, he, you know, that you can still love those players, and the only thing better than one of those dudes being in the same league is both of them. So I'm just excited to see, like, hopefully Zlatan comes back and plays a little bit for United and plays against Aubameyang, man. That'd be so cool. That would be really cool. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think Zlatan's going nah. uh, to play many more Premier League minutes. I think that uh, they probably looked at moving him this January. I think he's definitely out, out, of, the, uh, out of the club this summer. I'm excited to watch him play in MLS next year. He's gonna, yeah, he's gonna see, be one of the best players in MLS. It's not like he's bad. No, he's great, and he's gonna like he's a freak of nature. He's gonna go to LA probably, um, and uh, and do Zlatan things over a bunch of completely right. overmatched uh, MLS defenders, and it's gonna be really cool. Right, it's like David Villa going from Champions League finalist Atletico Madrid to NYCFC and autom- like just immediately becoming one of the best players in the league. Like he I mean, he rules. Yeah, Zlatan he's rules. Great. He's going to score at will and he's going to make LA suddenly, you know, a middle of the table team probably if and like assuming the, that the, happens. Here's the thing about Zlatan going to LA is so yes, it does follow MLS's his you know trajectory now and then trajectory of being a retirement league for European superstars. Except for like sometimes that's okay. It's it can't be what the league is, right? It can't just be a retirement league. But if you right. get to get Zlatan doing Zlatan things because he can't really do it full time against European talent, fine. Well, that's I mean, awesome. But also do like that. he went to play for Manchester United, at, and one could make the argument that that was a retirement move. So it's not like the EPL is a retirement league, but yeah, yeah. they grabbed a really talented older player to bolster their attack, and he fucking ruled for them until he got injured. And I'm I mean, sure the helped. same thing's going to happen for him in in, in the U.S. Yeah, I think people are forgetting how much he fucking propped United up last year. Cracking like another beer. They were bad. Yeah. They were bad last year, except for Zlatan. Um, so last topic and just I just I I don't really even know how to do this is why I cracked another beer. It's just because I want to shout out to my dude. I, I don't even know which guy it is. I, I haven't dealt with that part of this yet, but big old shout out to the dude that um Flashed his dong on national television in England is pretty awesome. 
yeah, like it, what's really cool is all right. So Huddersfield lost. I think it was Birmingham. They were playing someone, anyways. It was it was a pretty bad loss. But this dude was about to go on the pitch, and I guess he was he was trying to put on or you know I. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but whatever whatever ended up happening it seemed like he changed his shorts. The problem is that like if you're not really wearing like <laughs> compression underwear the way the way like most people who play this sport do now, and you change shorts on the bench, your dong's gonna flop out, and that's exactly what happened. Like he pulls down his shorts right, and it just happens to be at a moment when the national TV camera has cut to this face of their coach looking really pensive, and over his over his left shoulder is <laughs> this dude just pulling down his pants and it's like his big ass dong just flopping out, and he quickly pulls his <laughs> pants back up, but like it is right there. You know what's my favorite part is, as best I can tell watching the video, he, like, adjusts his shorts several times. Yeah. And so, like, his dong is out, like, no less than three different times he, like, pulls his shorts down. Yeah, it, that, I mean, <laughs> I can't, I can't tell. This was, you know, did you ever hear that, um, that there's that, that bet where, like, this dude got suspended in, like, this third, English third division because he's, like, this fat goalie and there was, like, a betting scandal involving whether he would eat a sandwich during a game. <laughs> no, I never heard of this. <laughs> yeah, that dude. Yeah, so he I was mean, like, you, ev- bet, ev- you you bet yes, and then you do it. Right. No, exactly. He was like everyone's favorite player because he was so fat and and like an actual like you know semi pro pro goalie. And he and and like there was a like a betting line from a bookie on whether he would eat during a game, and like he saw it, bet on it, and then went and did it. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, this is just making me wonder whether, like, because of the amount of times this dude was flashing oh, his dick. Good point. Did, did was there like a prop bet, and it's like, are we gonna see? Are we gonna get a flash twice? Like, are we gonna <laughs> in the see, same match? Are we gonna see some dong on national television in this game? And he just tosses a prop bet on. I was like, yeah, I'll figure it yeah. out. Like I'm, I'm, I'll see when the cameras are looking at the manager, and I'll just pop it out, flop I'll it out. See what, so let's see what I can do. <laughs> It reminds me of this other, like the, one of the most classic uh, moments in all of, uh, uh, of like you know football fails is when the dude from the English uh, uh, player shit himself during a game in the World Cup. Uh, <laughs> oh my god! It's a god! What an amazing video! It's one of the great. Like you see him like scooting along the ground like a dog, and then someone runs up next to him and like has this look of disgust, and the dude like clearly <laughs> says, "I've shit myself." <laughs> <laughs> he stayed in the game for another for like another half an hour, and like he gave an interview and, and for like a retrospective of that moment. He was like, "This is the most space I've ever had as a striker." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both, both the situations kind of it's sort of unrelated, but it kind of reminds me of this uh, moment from the Olympic uh, ceremony, open ceremonies. The same came down and crashed the opening ceremonies twice wait really yeah yeah so this dude just like walks so like some guy is singing something korean because korean olympics and this dude just like walks up next to him and kind of puts his arm around him and they (laughs) go and they remove this guy then like 50 minutes later he fucking comes back again (laughs) the same dude back down onto the field and like getting involved again they rush him off again how do they not restrain him the first time (laughs) how how do you not remove this guy from the stadium (laughs) 
<laughs> how do you not keep it? Like, how do you let that happen a second time? It's unbelievable. Right, so like, look, the first time, there's nothing you can do about it. The second time, I feel like that's on you, not him. That's true. Also, whoever's operating the camera in this Huddersfield match, like, cut away from the coach, man. Like, if you see some guy in the background <laughs> adjusting fucking... his dick, like, you got to cut, cut, fucking get away. Get your camera off that. <laughs> I know. It. I know. Oh my god, it's ridiculous! It's just a ridiculous video. So yeah, yeah, it, I think it's gonna be hard to see like unedited, which is whatever. Who cares? Don't like you know, no reason to go searching for it. But it is quite funny, and I'm really glad that we got to use that as our transition <laughs> to this awesome interview with Kevin. So uh, enjoy a entirely actually serious and interesting discussion, which has absolutely no mention of people's swinging dongs <laughs> with Kevin. All right, here's your interview. All right, buddy. <laughs> All right, and we're back. We have uh, your pre-taped interview segment. We are excited to welcome back uh, our good friend, Kevin McCauley. Kevin, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Uh, not a lot of downtime or lag time between your two episodes. No, we got stuff to talk about, though. Yeah, it's important stuff. Um, yeah, so we're going to chat a little bit about um, women's soccer and some of the, the news that's been breaking and uh, the actual professional women's soccer world, and then um, jump in a little bit to your article that came out uh, today. <clears throat> excuse me on um, USSF, uh, which uh, you know there's a lot of you know been a lot of controversy. We've been tr- doing our best to cover it, but I'm glad you you can maybe walk us through what um, what we're missing from some of this coverage because I know there's a lot. But before we do any of that, um, I I wanted to chat a little bit about women's professional soccer, and I thought that um, as you're one of the people that I know who, who follows it pretty closely and who um, I, I trust for analysis on it. So I think that just kind of at the basic level, what I'm particularly interested in is what, 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 how would you recommend someone who, like to me and Evan, who are both you know, big fans of the Women's World Cup, how do you think, what do you think is the best avenue for getting into the world of women's professional soccer? Like, is it trying to follow the American Women's Soccer League or is it maybe more trying to get into the European game? I think following the European game is probably going to be a little harder than following the domestic women's game or the uh, European men's game because the, uh, I guess the channel streams that games are on very wildly and uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not the easiest thing to follow, but in the United States, it's great because every game is on the same app. That's free. (laughs) Uh, It's called go 90 and you can get it on your phone and you can like, send it to uh, like Chromecast or something and the picture quality is good. Um, and you can watch every single NWSL game for free. Oh, that's awesome. So, that's, that's really ones, cool. Once oh. a week that are, they have one national TV game once a week. that's on go 90, but uh, the rest of it's on go 90. Well, that's, well, that's easy enough then. So why don't we talk a little bit uh, about the NWSL? Because I think the reason that I was particularly interested in bringing you on is that they had one of the things happen in their league, which is one of the real, you know, catastrophes uh, for a professional soccer league or professional sports league generally, they had a team go under. So why don't you, can you just walk us through exactly what happened with the uh, now former Boston Breakers? Yeah, the Boston Breakers were kind of the longest continuous running professional team. They were around in WUSA, which started after the, the 1999 Women's World Cup, and they continued through the other professional leagues and amateur leagues and, and operated continuously. Um, but the kind of the the guy who bought into the NWSL version is uh, somebody who has plenty of money, but is not 
uh, not a billionaire or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, In NWSL, you have this kind of weird situation where about half the owners are uh, either, you know, affiliated with MLS clubs, they're also the MLS owners, or uh, they have a lot of money. And then you have the other half of your owners who are, you know, you're they're they're rich, but they're not like what you'd associate with professional sports owner rich. They're, you know, people who have 20, 30 million dollars. So they can sustain losses of a couple million dollars a year for a few mm-hmm. years, but they can't they can't do it indefinitely. And the guy who owned the breakers kind of had a business plan to break even by 2018. Um, but the losses in 2017 were bigger than projected. They actually saw a significant decline in attendance, even though the team got better and their their stadium location was fine and they upped their marketing spend and it was kind of too much of a loss for them to incur, uh, keep going in 2018. So formally at the end of the season, weren't going to be able to feed the team. The league's looking for, for owners. Uh, got close to bringing in a new ownership group, but when it came down to it that uh, that ownership group decided to not go through with the deal, and uh, they decided rather than prop up the team for a year, to uh, to fold the team because they they just they just didn't think that there was going to be a way to sell it in the situation they were in, and decided that it was better to fold the team than try to prop them up for a year. That's interesting. Now there, so there wasn't. Um, I, I was hearing a little bit like they, it, it, there was some criticism that they didn't do quite enough to find another maybe ownership group or another group of people who might have been in, interested in injecting some cash into the team. Is that, I mean, is that right? Or am I, or am I just hearing just kind of the anger, uh, the people that are normally going to be angry, being angry about this stuff? I didn't think that, I mean, they, the, the chances of them finding another ownership group were, were small, but I think that it would have been better for the league to decide to, prop them up for a year and search for an owner perhaps in a in a different market or uh you know come up with a with a plan for at the end of a season what to do with this team uh, as opposed to a couple of months before the season starts just you know blowing them up and doing a dispersal draft a week after they they went through the the college draft and drafted players um the criticism wasn't necessarily about them not searching for another ownership group it was the kind of the timing of like right if you were going to do this you should have done it in october and if you and if we got to this point if we got this far and you didn't have an ownership group then what you need to do was prop them up for a season uh and then kind of come up with the plan for mm-hmm. what to do with them at the end of next year as opposed to uh the way they went about it Right, so there's a it's it's more of a timing issue. I mean, it it would right. really suck. I mean, to be a college player thinking you're, hey, look, this is so cool. I'm gonna go pro. I'm gonna go play in Boston. This is great. And then a week after you get drafted and uh, you know either are about to sign your have already signed your first pro contract, suddenly the team that you're gonna go play for no longer exists. And you know, I imagine right that on some. Well, and I'm so- sure the the players were informed that this was a possibility when they were drafted. Like, hey. Don't don't sign a lease in Boston. <laughs> like, this right. you know this might happen, but you know at the same time, like yeah, they when they were drafted, they at least they didn't know. They thought, oh, I might play in Boston or I might play uh, somewhere else to be determined that I find out in a few weeks. Right. And this has led to uh, a problem where now 
they the league doesn't have a schedule out yet because they have to redo the schedule because they have fewer teams than they thought. So now you have each of the each of the teams is in a place where they can't even really market their season opener because they don't know what their season opener is. Um, and it's you know the timing was just really really bad. Well, right, and and on top of that, that actually just speaks to how how, how badly this was handled. Then, given like because of course like if you're in a in a league that really is you know, going to, it requires a significant amount of marketing and, and draw and people want, you know, they want to invest in, in getting people out to the games. If you can't even say, Hey, like come to our first game. And a lot of these teams will run promotions, like just to get people in the seats for that first game, because a lot of, I mean, and, and one of the things that's consistently said about this sport, right. Is that if you can get people that first game, they've, they become fans pretty quickly. Right. And like, if they can't even market that, then, I mean, that's, all speaks to why it would have been smarter to you know, prop them up for a year so that at least you don't have to pitch like the entire schedule and throw the entire league into disarray. Uh, right. And after this happened, you had uh, Merritt Paulson, the, the, the Portland Timbers and Portland Thorns owner kind of hitting back at people who are criticizing the league operations and, uh, you know, kind of like calling fans <laughs> clueless and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, man, it's easy for you to say, like, you, you know, you're the one, the one guy who's in a market where you don't have to worry about this stuff, you know? Right. And, and like, part of that is, is what he's invested into it that has helped build up Portland to that point. But like, there's also some, you know, some, some fortune involved here. It's not like he did it all himself. Um, And you have his, his fellow owners who are in the situation where they're trying to uh, they're trying to build up these teams that they're currently losing money on, and they've been put in a situation where they they can't market. And it's it's weird that he seems like, uh, you know, blind to the problems that owners that aren't him have. Evan, I think you were going to ask something. Yeah, I was maybe going to ask something, and then I lost my place. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I thought that, you know, this obviously just sucks so bad for the Boston Breakers fans, and it was definitely a ruthless choice to to cut them loose. But I, I thought that the four four two had a pretty good analysis where they they kind of broke down the two directions or like the two paths forward you could see coming out of this. Like in one telling, this is um, the league refusing to prop up this team that they're just going to, you know, lose the faith of the fans. They're never really going to, you know, it'll just be a continual downward spiral and it'll just be another failed league. In another telling, this is MLS 2002. This is Tampa and Miami folding, but the league consolidating around its strongest franchises and then able to rebuild and expand again, um, you know, on a more solid footing with more solid ownership groups. And so I guess I'm curious, Kevin, your perspective on, you know, regardless of whether or not they should have propped them up because, you know, that decision has been made, your perspective on what it's going to look like going forward, um, you know, which which of those scenarios, kind of the the gloomy, this is a you know downward spiral or the more sunny, this is consolidating around our strong franchises, which of those do you think is more likely? Or is there like I mean, a I third think, option? <laughs> or is there something the, else? I think the latter is is more likely, but I think that there is a third option, and I think the league itself showed the third option last year when you had a situation with FC Kansas City where the, they had to get rid of the of the owners because uh, there was uh, basically an unsafe work environment with owners that were 
that were sexist and sending around derogatory emails. And they had to find a solution last minute that with a, an owner that wasn't necessarily invested or properly vetted. Um, and FC Kansas City was kind of in a crappy situation last year with, you know, them not the the team not meeting league league minimum standards and uh they had to kind of find some place for them to go at the end of the season uh but what happened i think was best for the team in the long run them having to go through that one season that really sucked and then getting picked up by uh by utah by the rsl ownership group and other utah royals and almost all of that roster has been has been kept intact um that situation sucked for those players that they had to uh, go through a season where the you know league minimum standards weren't met, but I think it still ended up being a better long-term solution for the league and the players than what happened to Boston. Yeah, um, yeah. and it, if the and if the owners are saying and the league is saying we have teams, we have owners interested in expansion, you know we're going to add teams next year most likely. Well, that's even more reason to prop, prop the breakers up for a year so that at the end of the season. Rather than going through expansion drafts and all that, somebody can just acquire the Breakers roster. Yeah, and <laughs> really it, and point. it also yeah, it's a really good point. And it it does also seem like a lot of the strongest franchises in um, in the women's league are are those associated with the MLS teams. At, at least that's my perspective, looking from the outside. Orlando's got a strong franchise. Portland's got a strong franchise. They moved the Kansas City franchise out to you know be kind of under the real Salt Lake ownership group and I, I just wonder if that was explored with respect to Boston or if that's what they're thinking going forward for expansion well they they said that they talked to uh, the crafts the New England Revolution ownership group but just short term with them not really necessarily having a suitable venue and mm-hmm. with the breakers having debts they the the crafts decided not to do that uh, I think that there is definitely going to be Another team out west, whether that is uh, San Jose or LAFC affiliated, I would be very surprised if one of those two cities did not have an NAS, uh, NWSL team next year. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's definitely something we're going to see going forward. I think Atlanta's probably going to consider it. I think even though uh, Sporting Kansas City didn't want to acquire FC Kansas City and all of their problems, that they will probably look into it. Uh, I would be very surprised if five years from now, we didn't see half the MLS teams own an NWSL team as well. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of synergies there and it makes a lot of sense, you know, in, in terms of marketing, in terms of venues, like it, it just makes a lot of sense for them well, to right. get if, and exploit gonna, both markets. If you're going to spend a hundred million dollars or more on a soccer specific stadium and you're going to get taxpayer subsidies for it, well then you, you should probably fill a lot of dates in it and you should probably yeah. have a men's and a women's team. Yeah. It just makes perfect sense. I mean, that's sort of the model that the European leagues have taken, is my understanding. Like, there are very few standalone European women's teams. Um, am, am I wrong about that? I mean, that's that's the way I, like, when I've been trying to follow what's going on but, in Europe with women's soccer, it seems that way. There are standalone women's teams, but they are, uh, it kind of depend, varies from country to country. Like, a lot of the the really good teams in Scandinavia are standalone or not and not affiliated with men's clubs. And there are a few big ones in Germany that are not affiliated with men's clubs. But for the most part, your uh, all of your your teams in England are affiliated with men's clubs. Uh, Barcelona is kind of building up a, a big women's team. Lyon, PSG, Montpellier are the are the big ones in in France, and they're affiliated with the men's teams. Uh, and Bayern Munich has been 
for a long time was not one of the the big competitors in the women's league in, in Germany, but is now in same for uh, for Wolfsburg. Uh, so that's increasingly the case. And I think you see, especially in, in England, uh, what they've been doing is uh, building like a smaller a smaller stadium that's like their tr- they're like for like training games friendlies the reserve team and the women's team will like all use one smaller stadium oh interesting um, and that's could because you know they don't want these these teams that are like upstart growing teams that are maybe getting a couple thousand people their games right now playing in this big cavernous em- empty stadium so they'll build like a 5000 and 10000 seat stadium that that is like for those all of those other purposes oh fascinating well, i mean so here's just some Two two interesting kind of side notes. First of all, um, Keon and I had a conversation about how um, he had spoken with some of the people at Real Madrid who are kind of making inquiries about how to start a Real Madrid women's team and how they, if they're going to do it, they've said stuff like they're not going to they're not going to do it small, so they want to invest in the best players, uh, which I thought was very cool, and I'm hopeful that they they end up doing that because I think there is a lot of um, you know, a lot of growth potential in Spain, considering like how much everyone loves the the game, but also on top of well, that, how bad their women the women's teams are. There's so and much, especially if you're if you're Real Madrid and how much money Real Madrid has. It's not it's such a drop in the bucket for them to create the best women's team on the face of the earth, right? Like it's so it's it's so not a big deal. Like what you know how many how many throwaway you know speculative ten million euro transfers has Real Madrid made, you know, guys who they don't, if they never become good, not even a big deal. It's just somebody we bought just in case. Right. You know, they do two, they, they do two of those a year on average. That's right. The best women's that funds the best women's team in the world right there. That's all you need. <laughs> and they, I mean, they put 45 million on this kid who was like 16 or whatever. So like, Oh yeah. yeah the Vinicius junior, the Brazilian guy, they committed like 60 million euros to yeah, him. And he's it's... 16 and he won't play a, and he won't even be able to allow to sign for Real Madrid for two more years. Right. <laughs> like, it, it'll cost you 10 million euros to build the best women's team in the world. Right. It seems like it, it would make a lot of sense. So, yeah, they're interested. And the other thing that I found really interesting is that I was um, I wrote a couple of articles about um, FFP. And one of the questions that I got about it was whether the women's clubs um, would fall under the regulations. And... I my answer was basically that the women's clubs would the ones that are affiliated with the men's teams would definitely fall within the ambit of FFP, but it would be considered as in the same ownership structure as whatever team owned the the men's team. Now I don't know if the standalone women's teams would, um, and I'm interested in that. I'll have to do a little more research. But it was interesting to to know that people were also thinking about that in context. Like for example, I know that PSG, OL, they all have women's teams, so. They would be, you know, possibly falling under this FFP issue, especially if they're losing money. Um, it it would be it would be silly if UEFA made women's teams adhere to really strict financial fair play policies. Like UEFA should be encouraging teams to right. <laughs> spend as much money as they want on the women's game. Right. It should. And if that it, means it they're be. losing. 10, 20 million euros a year, who cares? Like, right. that's what they should be doing right now. <laughs> yeah, I no agree. one's loading up on debt to build, you know, women's team juggernauts. I don't think it really implicates the central concerns of FFP. Yeah, yeah. no, I agree with that. Um, all right, so, uh, Evan, uh, unless you have any more questions, I have, um, I'm have. i happy to move on to uh, Kevin's USSF uh, article. Yeah, I think that's good. All right, well, awesome. So, Kevin, you wrote a really interesting piece on uh, the USSF 
presidential election and specifically on what has been the kind of burbling up controversies surrounding the role of uh, Soccer United marketing. So um, I think before we get into some more of the meat of this, can you just like give us a quick rundown of what the piece is about and who SUM is and, and, and whatnot? Yeah, so Soccer United Marketing is the commercial arm of Major League Soccer and is also a sports marketing company. And uh, U.S. soccer does not want to employ a huge staff of marketing people, so they sell their rights, TV broadcast, and sponsorship to Soccer United Marketing. Uh, So what Soccer United Marketing does is they bundle the U.S. soccer rights and the MLS rights together, and then they sell them as a package. So when you see uh, MLS has signed a TV deal for $90 million a year, that's $90 million a year for MLS and U.S. soccer properties together. Uh, because this company that is the an offshoot of MLS and entirely owned by MLS owners uh, has bundled them together. U.S. Soccer's rationale for doing this is, one, we don't want to hire a big marketing staff. We want to focus on soccer. And two, we want to eliminate any risk. Basically, instead of, you know, we make $50 million from TV this year and $20 million from TV the next year, we would like to have a guaranteed flat payment. We know exactly how much money we're going to make every single year. Uh, so those are the two reasons U.S. soccer kind of says they they do this. The, I guess, conspiracy theory part, or why people don't, don't like Soccer United marketing or think it's bad for American soccer, is uh, doing it this way, U.S. soccer probably doesn't get maximum value for its TV and sponsorship rights. Um, they say that they do this to mitigate risk, to make sure they're going to get the same amount of money every year. Um, the critics of this deal say they do it to help MLS. Well, and there's kind of like two levels to that point, I think, right? So on the one hand, it's very common for federations to flip their licensing rights to uh, you know sports media companies like SUM. Um, and and they do that for similar reasons to reduce risk. And then there's the second level about MLS's decision specifically to give it to SUM, which is associated with MLS, which sits on the board of USSF, right? So I think there's, you know, both both points when right. it comes to and the quote unquote conspiracy or the conflict of interest. So the and the uh, I guess the the counter argument to that from U.S. soccer and from MLS is that when the the contracts are decided, the people who are affiliated with both entities are not sitting in on that meeting. So like right. when when U.S. soccer is talking about uh, renewing its contract with Soccer United Marketing, Don Garber does not go to that meeting because he has a conflict of interest. And U.S. Soccer says, you look at all of our meetings minutes, you will you will see who's president who's president at the board meetings where we're discussing the sum contract. Nobody who has an MLS affiliation is present at those meetings. Right, and, and so this is fundamentally the subject and the and the argument with respect to the most recent lawsuit filed against. Uh, USSF or specifically the USSF board of directors accusing them of breaching their fiduciary duties. The argument in the lawsuit is they have, you know, they have breached their duty of loyalty to the organization by um, giving them the media rights to SUM to the benefit of a certain subset of directors. The response from USSF is exactly that. They say, you know, from a legal perspective, um, corporations have problems with conflict of interest all the time. They can be cured by not allowing the directors who have a conflict of interest from participating, from having review by independent directors, by having everything out in the open. It's okay. 
Um, and, you know, there's a good chance that that argument carries the day legally, whether it carries the day in a, a in a broader sense, in a more ethical sense, I, I think is a more complicated question, because just because these guys aren't in the room doesn't mean that they don't have the ear of the people who are in the room. And I think right. that's and the, the concern of some USSF, you know, watchers. The idea that Sunil Gulati and Don Garber have never had a conversation about U.S. soccer and Soccer United Marketing's partnerships and how it might benefit both parties is ridiculous. Right. right? There's there's no way that they've been able to completely avoid having conversations about with it, <laughs> about that with each other. Um, there's like the the lengths that they would have to go to to avoid that. It would be like another full time job to avoid having that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the the other really big problem and kind of the thing that Eric Minaldo is one of the candidates for U.S. soccer president is kind of hammered home is uh, the most recent rights were never were never put up to to bid because uh, Soccer United Marketing and this is common that Soccer United Marketing when their contract expires they have an exclusive negotiating period where uh, U.S. soccer and and Soccer United Marketing is the the only party for a certain period of time that U.S. soccer can negotiate with. Um, rather than let that period expire and go into kind of open bidding, U.S. Soccer decided to renew its deal with with Soccer United Marketing during that exclusive negotiating period, um, which is what kind of critics of the deal don't like. They think that U.S. Soccer should have uh, opened up the bidding and that if they so, did that, they would have made more money. So, Kevin, one of the things that Evan and I have been saying um, about this uh, process a lot is while we we both see a lot of issues with the conflicts of interest and some of this stuff part of the issue that is going on i think and one of the reasons that made this such an unpleasant thing to discuss especially in public on social media <laughs> is that um people don't really understand uh the way that corporate <laughs> and business decisions really get made and litigated and by litigated i mean literally discussed so like this is a corporate board election. This isn't like an election for like governor or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, and these, you know, biz, these are business decisions that are being negotiated. So like one of the things that I think that, that I think when at least is, is kind of guilty of is a little bit is playing to a public that doesn't really understand or doesn't really care how traditionally corporations do business and is more treating this like a public election where he, like there is definitely a very vocal and angry group of the public who are vociferously on his side. Right. And he's done a good job of marshalling those people. But it, it, it strikes me that that, first of all, it doesn't really matter. And second of all, whoever becomes the president, if it's not him, will be hamstrung by the fact that there is a large segment of the pu public who now believes that every other candidate is uh, laboring under a crushing conflict of interest. Right. Like, uh, it seems like most Eric Winalda supporters even think that Kyle Martino is like in the in the bag here, that he's going to flip and become this corporate sellout if he wins. Right. Um, which I don't know. Well, but like you said, that doesn't really matter because like that's not who the, the president's going to answer to. The president is going to answer to not just the board of directors, but to the Athletes Council, to MLS clubs, to NWSL clubs, to uh, the state soccer associations. And uh, ultimately, and like I don't I don't really like saying this because it makes me sound like a jerk. But <laughs> what the the public thinks doesn't really matter here. Like it, it really doesn't matter. 
Right. That's I mean that's what we've been saying. And yeah, we've been saying we've been covering and, this in the media like a democratic election, but it's a corporate board election, and, and like, they're just right. the, the process isn't matching the coverage, or vice versa. So, so you have this situation where, if if we put this up to a public vote right now, uh, like every everybody, I don't know what, how, what criteria we'd set, but anybody who calls themselves an American soccer fan, you get a vote in the election. Uh, Eric Winaldo would probably win. Maybe Kyle Martino would win, and like Kathy Carter would probably get five percent of the vote right. at most. Yeah. Um, but but in reality, Kathy Carter is probably going to win this thing, right? And probably like, without too much trouble. I don't know that Kathy Carter is going to win the election. I know that she is going to have the uh, most support on the first ballot, and I know she's going to last a few rounds. Right. I don't know that she's going to win, but she's a like she's definitely the favorite. Right. And one of the things that we've also been saying is that if you put any kind of corporate election and corporate, you know, business decision under a very, very close microscope like you do with any Democratic election, uh, then a lot of people who a lot of people aren't going to like what they see, which fair, because the truth is that corporate elections aren't supposed to be Democratic. There's going to be a lot of kind of horse trading. And um, the business decisions often aren't made democratically. And I mean, and one can argue about the ethics of all that. But the truth is that this is a, you know, a money making entity, right? Or at least an entity that 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 is much more functioning and run like a corporation. So people aren't. Well, simply... I, I guess that's what so especially somebody like Kyle Martino, he would that would be his main criticism is like mm-hmm. this is supposed to be a sports organizing body and a nonprofit and, and uh, a, an, an organization that's focused on developing better soccer players and, uh, and soccer leagues for everybody from, you know, adult amateur associations to NPSL and PDL to the second and third divisions. Like that's what it's, that's what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to be a corporate board election. It's supposed to be, you know, run more like, you know, some of the other, uh, like Olympic sport federations. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I, I have um, come around a lot to, to Kyle Martino. Actually, I think he's a very intriguing candidate, but I, I would say that like, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the problem is that as it stands right now, it's this election is being run like a corporate election. So like putting that under the microscope is going to be by definition, really going to outrage people that, especially people that are looking to be outraged, right? Like there's a whole segment of people right now that uh, anytime there's what well, you know, any establishment that wants something, especially when there's been a, like a kind of systemic failure, they want to see total, you know, yeah. t- pitch everything out the window and start from scratch. And so, by, by nature, corporations and, and things like USSF don't want to do that. So the election's going to be interesting because some of those people do have a voice in a way that you have these, state soccer associations that have a pretty big chunk of power and the people that run those have to answer to their constituents who are, you know, just your, your everyday people who are involved in your game, in the game, club coaches, high school coaches, um, are going to be, are going to be calling their, their state association presidents or emailing them, uh, you know, pissed off and wanting and wanting stuff to change. And so when a state association president who is going to have to stand election themselves is looking at their email inbox and is going, Okay, we have two emails supporting Kathy Carter, three supporting Carlos Cordero, and uh, twenty supporting Kyle Martino, and thirty supporting Eric Winalda. That's going to influence how that how that person votes. So yeah, 
in that way, you know, there's there's going to be some opposition. It's not like Carter's just going to, you know, bring in 90 percent of the vote and and it's going to be over. But uh, that's kind of how it's it's interesting that we have all these different sections that like one one area of U.S. soccer doesn't have like disproportionate power. It's actually the way the election is split up and who votes like seems pretty fair to me. Well, and this is one of the big things about how the election is put together is that so U.S. soccer has a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of these stakeholders do have a vote. And so MLS is a very important stakeholder in U.S. soccer and the soccer federation. And they have a lot of votes. But as you point out, so does the Athletes Council. So do local state associations. And uh, what interests me most about thinking about the SUM controversy is, you know, who are the winners and who are the losers here? So, you know, a pretty clear winner here is MLS and the MLS owners are a huge winner in, um, you know, in, in this process. And the pitch, you know, that someone like Eric Winalda or to some extent Kyle Martino is going to make to these other people is, hey, you're a loser here to like the state association. You're losing here. This money is going to SUM is going to the pockets of MLS they're using it to invest in their clubs rather than, you know, if that money through an open bidding process just went to the soccer federation, um, you know, they, or they got more cash through it through an open bidding process, more of that money might trickle down to the state associations. And so, you know, it, it's, I think, incumbent on someone like Kathy Carter to convince these people that the lower risk in this kind of cozy relationship with MLS is worth potentially losing out on some of those licensing dollars that might make it down to, you know, to these local levels. Right. And I think the the election ultimately is going to come down to the Athletes Council, because I think that Carter's going to have a really tough time picking up a high number of those of those state associations. Uh, she's going to she's going to sweep the the pro votes, undoubtedly. Um, and then there's a few other sections where, you know, she's going to draw from. But I don't think that she has a path to 50 percent without. Uh, most of the Athletes Council, who uh, traditionally votes as, as one big block, but uh, does not is not necessarily have to. And there have been some uh, there's been a lot of news this week or I guess rumors that uh, they're they're not yet decided on whether or not they're going to vote as a block or they're going to or they're going to vote as individuals because uh, mm -hmm. there's significant disagreement between you know sections of the Athletes Council. And it seems like the division is uh there's Cordero definitely has some support, but most of the division is Martino or Carter. Um, so it's probably going, the election is probably going to be decided on whether or not the athletes council decides to vote as a block. And if they do who that, who that block ultimately goes for, um, because I don't think that Carter has a path to 50 without them. And I don't think any other, uh, anyone else has a path to 50 without them. Now who makes up the athletes council? There are. Uh, I can bring up the list for you. I don't have it handy. No, um, I, it's just like the kind of general, like not even like specifically. I just mean generally. Like, is it former and current player and their representatives? Yeah, there are. There are some current players and some former players. Mm -hmm. hmm. This is and I think there there are about twenty of them. I'm going to see if I can find the whole list because I, I, I had it recently. I'm going to pull it up. Cool. Okay. So the I'm going to just read the whole damn list for you. All right. Uh, <laughs> The council chair is uh, Chris Ahrens. The co-chairs are Carlos Bocanegra and Angela Huclis. Um And then the other council members are Shannon Box, Brian Ching, Brad Guzan, Stu Holden, Lauren Holiday, uh, Will John, Lori Lindsay, Kate Markgraf, John O'Brien, Heather O'Reilly, Leslie, Leslie Osborne, Nick Pereira, Chris, uh, Christy uh, 
Pierce, uh, Gavin Sibian, Jonathan Spector, Lindsay Tarpley, and Allie Wagner. Huh. So we've got a, a mix of, oh. of current players, recently retired yeah. players, and players who've been retired for a while, uh, both men's and women's. That's cool. It's interesting to see to think if they're going to vote as a block. That, that's that's fascinating. I, I wonder, like they just, usually do. Yeah, well, right. No, of course. Well, but there also hasn't really been a competitive uh, election yeah. in a while, or something right. where you know voters are getting pressure, you know, media pressure and Twitter pressure and public pressure, and they're probably hearing from all you know, like Jonathan Spector is probably hearing from all kinds of people just out and about, right? And uh, that's probably not happened in too many boring, dry USSF board meetings before. But also right, and then you you have somebody like Stu Holden who is on one hand uh Eric Ronaldo's coworker. <laughs> on the other hand is repre- represented by Wasserman who uh and Casey Wasserman has been kind of promised this big role to overhaul the federation if uh Kathy Carter is elected. So mm. uh and I'm and I'm sure Holden has met with and has relationships with other candidates as well. So um like I have no idea how these people are going to vote. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, like, and and I just want to go circle back to one thing you said earlier, which is that actually, like, when you look at the way this election, you know, is structured, all the different voting blocks, it actually is seem pretty fair. And I I totally agree with that. And especially when you compare it to the way every other soccer federation like chooses its members and like if like compared to like how fifa chooses its president or how like you know the the lfp in spain chooses it or whatever like this is actually a really really good way to do it when it strikes the right balance between kind of giving giving important institutions and people a little bit more weight and like not giving them too much weight right like I, I think, think ML, MLS having fourteen percent of the vote is about the right number. Yeah. Right. Because another place, I mean, I can imagine. I have no idea how Spain does their decisions, but my guess is what La Liga wants is probably a lot more important than fourteen percent of it's the. It's not decisions. just what La Liga wants. It probably is like more like what Real Madrid and Barcelona want. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think with reference to you know you know FIFA or other federations, I just think it's worth a caveat here that when people are complaining about a conflict of interest between sum and mls or sum and ussf like it's completely different than the types of impropriety and outright bribery that have been involved with other fifa entities and sports marketing companies because those also were most of those scandals also are about media rights and i don't think anyone's making the allegation here that that there's any kind of bribery that there's any kind of money changing hands it's really just the conflict of interest you know are they really getting the best deal for the soccer federation or are they doing a little bit of a favor for mls because they think that that's either good for the game or because they want to help their buddies i think it's oh i think it's a little bit of of both that they want to give mls a good deal because they think it's good for the game and uh let me be like clear about this i can't prove that nobody can prove that just my opinion yeah um I think that they are giving giving some a slightly favorable deal because they think that MLS making a little bit more money is good for the overall health of the sport and that it will trickle down to the rest of the yeah. sport. Um, and I don't, and I, also, opi- I don't think that's opinions. I don't think that opinion is ridiculous. I think that we can have an argument about that. I don't, it's not like absurd to think that okay, MLS growing and being stronger. That's the that's the anchor for the game growing in, in the United States. I can see where you would think that. And I also think that they do genuinely believe that everyone is better off bundling the rights, that if they put MLS and U.S. Hmm. soccer together, 
they get more money than if they'd sold them separately, um, which I disagree with. But right. I think it's a perfectly valid opinion, and I think it's a genuine one, and it's not like a scam or anything. Right. It's, it's actually what they yeah. believe. Yeah, you read some of these judgment. quotes, and it's like, yeah, you read some of these quotes, and they're like, you know, we're when we do it this way, you sell all of soccer instead of just a piece of soccer. Um, but I tend to agree with you, Kevin, that because different aspects of soccer in the United States are watched by different audiences, you could probably make more money if you broke them into their constituent parts and sold them to people who are most able to get it out to the right audience. And so your your chances, I think there's more efficiency that way than bundling them together. But what do I know? Right. Because if you like, let's say you separated out the U.S. women's national team, I think that you would be able to like you'd get more people in, in the mix. Like you see uh, any networks lifetime has bought an equity stake in NWSL and puts NWSL yep. games on TV every year because they feel like that's mm -hmm. relevant to your audience, yeah. their audience. If you broke out the U.S. women's national team right separately, you would still have Fox and ESPN and NBC interested, but you might also have an a and &E, a lifetime interested, and then you could yep. pit them against each other, and that drives the price up. Yep, whereas where it, where it is right now is someone like ESPN has to bid for the whole bundle, even though maybe they don't actually value the women's national team games that much, and maybe they're not really going to put many of them on TV. Um, and so they're not able to leverage them as much as, like you said, some other networks would if they could buy them separately. And I think right. that's a, just a strong argument for, for breaking them out. And your anti-MLS pro for USA people would make the argument that uh, if you unbundled them, the MLS rights wouldn't actually sell for that much. Uh, their TV deal wouldn't really be worth anything. <laughs> and the U.S. national team would get would get more money. The U.S. Mm -hmm. men's national team would their their cut, you know, what they would get from selling their rights separately would be more than uh, the they from their United marketing deal, which uh, is debatable, but I think is probably true. Right. And I, I wonder, and this is just, it would just get way into the weeds, but I, I wonder, are the rights that that are bundled in, the MLS rights that are bundled in with all the other soccer rights, are they just kind of the national rights for MLS broadcast? Does that somehow trickle into the local media market? No, that's uh, just the, it's rights? just the national rights. It's X number the of, of national TV games yeah. uh, per week. It's like one, one Spanish, one Fox, one ESPN. Right. And then uh, teams can sell their own local rights. Yeah. And so I'm curious what per I would then be curious what percentage of every MLS club's revenue comes from the local media deal vice MLS as a whole getting, you know, four games that, a week nationally. That varies wildly. You have yeah. a couple of teams on the bottom who they're happy to get a partner who puts the games on TV that they don't have to pay. Uh -huh. <laughs> they're Right. They love that they get their games on TV and they break even on it. Whereas you have a team like the LA Galaxy that makes a very significant portion of their revenue off selling local TV rights. Right. I would imagine that LA Galaxy or NYCFC or even Atlanta make a, quite a bit more than like. Well, NYCFC is is interesting because it's it's like it's vertically integrated. They oh, don't right, they don't sell their rights. They just get the ad revenue from putting it mm -hmm. on. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. The ownership. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a good point. Um, so I, I um, there's one question that Evan wrote here that I, I want to get into quickly before um, we wrap this up. But uh, a lot of the corruption scandals around the world in the different soccer federations and then also at FIFA uh, center on media rights and the sale or not sale or, or distribution of media rights contracts. Uh, I think that one of the, the one of the things that we've, we're seeing here is how much of kind of a black box 
all this stuff is with relate, relating to how the media rights packages are negotiated and sold in MLS and USSF. Do you feel like that maybe raises some concerns? You know, I, there's there hasn't been any suggestion of impropriety here yet. But going forward, given the vast amount of impropriety we've seen in media rights deals and this sport across the world, do you think there's any worry that if we continue down this path, we'll end up with stuff like that? I don't. I think these guys have really good lawyers, and I think they've thought about this. Um, okay. And I think especially good. you look at you look at what happened with Copa America, right? We're like, so these so these guys from the uh, from sports marketing companies like Traffic and TYC, and from the uh, from the confederations, kind of collude to create this tournament to uh, for the purpose of committing fraud. That is yeah. what the 2016 Copa America Centenario. Literally, it was created for the purpose of committing fraud. That's why it exists. Yeah. Um, Good so these guys, these guys all got busted, uh, right? So, yeah. but they, but they created this <laughs> tournament that everybody's excited about, that everybody wants to to play in and attend and watch on TV. Um, except all of the, the the media rights and everything about it was completely corrupt. So, <laughs> uh, U.S. Soccer or not U.S. Soccer, but U.S. Soccer and Soccer United Marketing. Um, kind of offer to take this over, but they want to make sure that it, they're not doing anything illegal. So they basically they went to the United States Department of Justice and they're like, <laughs> please help us make sure that we're not doing anything illegal here. Like, <laughs> we want to take over these contracts from people you indicted so we can do the soccer tournament, but we don't want to do anything illegal. So, like, please help us. Yeah. Um, and they did. That so, was probably the most badass conference call to the Department of Justice ever. <laughs> so, so U.S. So Soccer United Marketing makes a shitload of money off the Copa America, right? But they don't actually get most of the money until like well after the tournament ended, <laughs> because the Department of Justice is like verifying that all of it is legit, um, and not like laundered. That's awesome, <laughs> right? So, so, yeah. so this is why. Uh, Sunil Gulati revealed that U.S. soccer made $46 million from Copa America and the Federation has a, a surplus in excess of $100 million. Why well, he revealed that more than a year after the tournament concluded, because that's how long it took them to get their money. <laughs> um, so, no, I don't think we're going to we're going to get into this, th that kind of situation uh, like traffic and TYC and these other sports media companies got into uh I don't think USSF and some are going to get into that kind of situation because they're very, very careful about not getting into that situation. Right. And I think that man, man, I have So having been a white collar defense lawyer, I, I just can't I just I, I'm just never willing to to think that anybody is immune from just doing absolutely stupid shit. <laughs> No, like I've, I've seen it all now, and, that, and it didn't take long to see a bunch of stupid shit. That being said, though, I would I would note, Evan, that we do have our our country's like ability to track down and and get it's so much better white yeah. collar crime and and this kind of stuff is actually just simply better than almost all of the other people. Like, okay, there's I a reason that, that we are the ones that got. FIFA. Right, and I also I also think that from years of work, uh, you know, Sunil Gulati, Don Garber, these guys have been, you know, in the CONCACAF and FIFA game for a while, and they've seen how Chuck Blazer operates, they've seen how Jack <laughs> Warner operates, they've seen this up close, and I think they have a really good idea of how not to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, or, idea or, of, or how like, not to get caught. 
at least. If you want to put it that way, sure. <laughs> Don't but... have two apartments in Trump Tower for your cats. <laughs> like, but the, the and the other thing is, these got you know U.S. soccer and some were adjacent to all of that stuff, and didn't get didn't didn't get in trouble. That's true. No, so that's a good point. They, so they seem like they they know how to do things you know legally legit to not get not get in trouble. They seem like they know what they're doing. That's good mm-hmm. because uh, this is just a minefield of corruption. <laughs> it's well, just and, and honestly, I, I think seriously, <laughs> this this lawsuit alleging the conflict of interest, if it goes forward at all is going to end like up to the extent there's a black box. If this lawsuit goes forward, it's going to stopping a black box because discovery on that is going to bring a lot of stuff to light on how this was negotiated, what controls they used to make sure that there wasn't a conflict or try to mitigate the conflict. Like if the lawsuit goes forward, it might be a gold mine for, you know, reporters to delve into and figure yeah. out exactly how USSF operates. So, Evan, I mean, I don't, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to find anything. I mean, ever they released their minutes online. They released their finances online. They're a, uh, uh, they're a nonprofit that has to release their finances. I mean, Sunil Gladi is out there saying straight up, like, yo, this is how much money we make. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is, it's just, it's a small yeah, the, tactic. It's, but the question it's a, of, it's a way to discredit them. It's, it's a way to put, to put doubt in voters' minds that, that Kathy Carter or Carlos Cordero are people that they should elect. I think that's the point. It's a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. I, so, Evan, just really quickly, and this is kind of not off topic, but it's not really related. I'm just interested. Like, NASL is suing um, USSF, but it, does the USSF board owe a fiduciary duty to NASL specifically? I thought that, that, that their duty is to the corporation generally. Their duty, so for, for member organizations, so it's not a, so okay, USSF's not a corporation. It's okay. a member organization, no, okay. and they owe a fiduciary duties to all members. And so as long as you can make out a case that you're a member, then you can sue. And okay. it's a little more nebulous than shareholder rights. And I was just reading the complaint. I don't know much about the law about how you decide if you're a member or not, but they seem to have pled something that sounds plausible that they're members. Okay. That's that's actually all I wanted to know because I, I wasn't like trying to figure out how exactly this was going working yeah. out legally. And it's yeah, like, yeah. It's just figure out who's a member and it seems like if you have some kind of stake in USSF, you count as a member. That makes sense. That actually does make sense. Okay. So last question. So uh, so Evan, you you kind of boiled it down this way, and I think this is a good way to end this this uh, this chat. But um, the the kind of bottom line question is this: Do we want to keep the media rights in house, uh, basically allowing MLS and USSF to grow together, or do we want to have a more open process that might net more money, uh, which USSF would then have to invest itself? So what do you think, Kevin? If you like knowing what we know right now, how do you think you would proceed? Um, well, it doesn't. No, it, it's what's interesting is that it doesn't matter until 2022. That's when, <laughs> right? That's when that's when the rights come up. So this is all a conversation about stuff we do in four years or stuff that we did in the past. Right, strong um, point. <laughs> but my, I mean, I I tend to agree that it is in the best interest of U.S. soccer to let its exclusive negotiating period with some uh, expire and open it up uh, an open bidding process. And if some as the highest bidder, then so be it. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I also kind of get, for for what it's worth, and this is just my my opinion is basically that I I get all of the argument that that MLS should be the focus at this point in the development of the uh, of the federation. Like I I get that actually. Like I understand why like there's a lot of complaining about this, but 
the truth is that if when this country develops a really strong first division league that is very financially viable that has a huge broad base of support then at that point then i think all these other questions are going to kind of solve themselves or at least they'll be easier to 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 maneuver around because right now like mls is right in that sweet spot of just just at this position where it's suddenly like a very viable financially where there's a lot of fans that's growing and it's uh, yeah, I mean, look at the success of teams like Atlanta. Like this is a really exciting period. And I worry that, you know, rocking this boat right now could have negative impacts on what is a very crucial period in MLS's development. Right. And there's, and there's a, there was a point where all of this stuff was absolutely necessary. Um, mm-hmm. Soccer United marketing and this deal with, with us soccer uh, helped the league grow when it was at its bottom. And at the same time, U.S. soccer was in a situation where it was having trouble selling its rights, where IMG, uh, who, was the, who was then the rights holder, wanted out, was losing money, and Soccer United Marketing came up and scooped up the rights when no one else wanted to buy them. Uh, so at this, this time period from uh, 2002 to 2010, um, they really did need each other, and this really was a mutually beneficial thing. Um, and, it was, and it really was what was best for the game, and uh, I'm not sure that that's the case anymore. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. This is a great chat. Um, I mean, Evan, we, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to have you back on, Kevin, to chat more about all these other different things. But thanks so much again for this. This was really, really interesting. I hope everyone, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed coming on to chat with us. Yeah, it was great to come on. All right. Thanks so much, and Evan, we'll talk, talk next week. Sounds great. Give me a minute here. You have no idea how to frame me. Brother Ali is this, brother Ali is that You ain't been right yet So okay, I do it myself Yeah, you got me Big brother to be, I'm showing my teeth Feel it all in the air, it's too potent to breathe Explosive with the free, got a heavy one, I rolled up my sleeve I could post up or go for the three Versatile with it, I'm grinding until I get it Mindless of the divine limits of consequences I defy critics, I ain't scientific I find my intrinsic vibe and I ride with it Vocals know nothing other than soul touching So if they land in yours, it's just a homecoming If they don't go there, they might perish Land on deaf ears but die unembarrassed You don't need to hear my race in a song You hear the plane that I'm on Your whole face changed when I'm on Your ears might help you see Fuck hearing me, I need you to feel like me let the dark side slide right on out You don't deny it, announce it to the daylight Let it get inside of you cause you're not alive Till you open up your eyes to the daylight Let the dark side slide right on out You don't deny it, announce it to the daylight Let it get inside of you cause you're not alive Till you open up no, your no. eyes I never asked my brothers to put that crown on me Now they wanna frown on me, look down on me Pardon me, I don't think I'm hurting anybody Just because I took Shahada but I'm cursing at the party Saying I'm holy, just showing the whole me. Y'all just pretend to be whatever you